This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. If any of these companies sound familiar to you, DraftKings, Etsy, Foursquare, Venmo, their success in part is probably because of my guest today. She has been named the number one startup coach in the world. Hello everyone, welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm excited to introduce to you a friend of mine who calls herself a recovering CPA, who also happens to be a Broadway investor and now an author. Alyssa Cohn, welcome to my podcast. Oh, Liz, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on the show. And congratulations on your new book, From Startup to Grown-Up, Grow Your Leadership to Grow Your Business. Why'd you write this book? Well, I just kept walking to situations and I would say things like, how often do you meet with your leadership team? And they would say, what's a leadership team? Or when people are talking about executives who weren't kind of, you know, acting the way they wanted them to or doing the right things, I would say, well, did you hire them for that? And I kept thinking, I wish I had a book to prevent unforced errors. And so I couldn't (laughs) find that book. And so I decided to write it. There you go. And right off the bat, because I've read it, and it's so filled with so much great advice, you begin with the concept that, quote-unquote, leadership is an unnatural act. You've got to explain why you believe that. Because we are not born to be leaders. What leadership requires at times is to give harsh feedback or difficult feedback, I should say, to people. And we are really not raised to give feedback to our friends. Or there are times where a situation is sort of out of control and actually you really want to get upset with somebody, but you have to not be upset with them. You have to fill them with confidence, even though they're the ones who screwed up. Mm -hmm. And then also you have to repeat yourself over and over and over again until you are sick of it yourself. All of those things and more are the unnatural acts of leadership and people have to learn them. And I know you and I both agree that there is really not truth to this notion of he or she is a born leader. Leaders are made. Absolutely. Totally. Being an entrepreneur, in my opinion, is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) And the work that you are doing today is really focused on helping founders mature into those world-class CEOs. Why is going from a founder to a CEO such a difficult entrepreneurial path for so many? You know, honestly, they're two completely opposite kind of skill sets, right? An entrepreneur has to see the future, has to galvanize and inspire people to follow her in that, you know, it's crazy idea to put all these things together with sometimes bubble gum and glue. There's a lot of hustle, a lot of drive, and a lot of kind of figuring things out on the fly. A leader is supposed to be certainly having charismatic leadership, but also really understanding the mechanics of managing people making sure there are systems and processes and tools to bring people along, to measure how we're doing. And those two kinds of skills are just typically quite unrelated. So a founder has to learn those skills if they want to lead the startup that they are starting up. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is those self-management tools. And you offer really some great, helpful tools for people. And one thing that truly stood out for me in your book was this concept that the growth of a company begins with the growth within its founder. 
and that you have to know yourself. And that means you've got to know your strengths, you've got to know your weaknesses, or as you and I both like to call them, the opportunities for development. <laughs> I also like that you say you have to at least be willing to be introduced to yourself. That's a tough one for a lot of people, whether they're a founder or hold any position in a company for that matter. What do people need to do, Alyssa, to figure out their strengths and the development opportunities? Well, you're right that it's difficult for people. And I really admire the courage of founders and really all leaders who go through the process of uncovering their blind spots because, you know, it is not pretty. It is difficult to really see yourself at times in all your weaknesses. But the way to do it is to, first of all, have the courage to investigate, to kind of look around you and see what's working and not working. And certainly, to either find a coach or have people in your workplace give you the feedback you need to hear so you can begin to understand how you're showing up. You know, Liz, like everybody, you are the expert in your intention, but everybody around you is the expert on your impact. Mm-hmm. And making sure you marry intention with impact is a very important part of leadership development. One of the other things that I think is so important, too, when figuring this out is that you have to understand and, and grasp and comprehend what behaviors you need to subtract, ones you need to add. And then you talk about dealing with what fears may be under the hood. And those may be the toughest ones for people to figure out. How do they do that? Yes. You know, there's a, really a thing with almost all founders and actually with a lot of successful people, which is severe self-doubt and even imposter syndrome. And what that means is you've got these critical voices in your head. With founders, it's really like, oh, Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs would do it better, would do it differently. You know, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. That kind of a thing. And it's really important to overcome those fears. You know, what I talk about in the book and what is, I see with all of my clients is they can be in different spots. So one founder I work with, he had no problem raising money, getting VCs on board, was very successful in that. He had a lot of trouble somehow recruiting senior executives. When we unpacked it, it turned out he had a voice inside of him saying, oh, no, I'm pulling them away from secure jobs. What if we don't make it? And that what if we don't make it voice was running his recruiting process. So that wasn't going to help, right? Because he wasn't going to be able to, you know, showcase the opportunity. So we had to work with him to get a handle on that voice. One thing I tell all my clients to do, which is very helpful for everyone, is to do a highlight reel. And what that means is to write down the times where you're successful, where you have the best capabilities, where you really see yourself as super capable. Write those down. And when those negative voices creep up, you already have sort of evidence that you're actually pretty darn good at what you're doing. It's like that evidence can counteract at times the imposter syndrome or severe self-doubt. Great advice. As a coach, you and I both know that for anyone to engage a coach, the first step probably is that they have to be coachable. They have to be willing to be coached. And that, of course, requires vulnerability and authenticity. Let's start with vulnerability. Why is that so important when it comes to finding the right coach? Well, a vulnerability is, I mean, it's, it's like you can, will not be able to change unless you can speak your truth and share your honest fears with the person who's trying to help you change. So you have to find that chemistry that allows you to feel safe and be vulnerable. But the truth is that like the vulnerability is where the growth is. So you've got to find the ways to access your own vulnerability in order to be able to make the deep and personal changes you need to, to be the leader of your dreams. The other thing that I thought was so interesting is that you write, authenticity is as much a learned skill as anything else. And I don't think we think of authenticity as being something that we learn. What do you mean by that? 
Well, what I mean by that is I always put authenticity in air quotes because it's like people want you to be authentic, which means they want you to be vulnerable, but like this and not like that. They don't want you crying all over the stage and falling apart. And they also don't want you yelling at them, even though you feel frustrated, Mm -hmm. right? But if that's authentically how you're feeling and how you're doing, well, then that's what's (laughs) going to show up. What I think about is a lot of humanity. People are able to, you know, connect to your chinks in the armor and you need to let some vulnerability and authenticity come out, of course. And you need to still always remember that you're under surveillance. You are on stage as a CEO, as a founder, as any leader. And so you need to find the ways to be appropriately authentic, right? To sort of be the authentic self that they're looking for. And that will help guide you in terms of your leadership and connecting to people. You also write, leading is frustrating. People are endlessly confounding. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges a manager, a founder, or a CEO can face. How do we go about dealing with that piece of thing, the people equation? I know. I know. But only work for the people, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the truth is, as a coach, I think we've both seen the incredible heights, the wonderful aspirations and inspirations that people that when people show up in a certain way. And that's wonderful. And we've also seen all the muck and mire and difficulty and pettiness of what it is to be human. And those things both exist in, in all of us. They, they, they exist at the same time in all of us. You have to make peace with the fact that nobody is perfect, including you, including That's you, right. the CEO, founder, and leader. That's right. And you need to navigate with these people and bring out their best. It's expected that they will not you know, do the right thing all the time, and they will at times be annoying. So what do you need to do as a leader to bring out their best to ultimately have a great team and ultimately have a great company? Here's another tough one that I think is really hard for people when it comes to people, if you will. You may have had the right people when you started, you brought on the right people, but as your company grew, they may now be the wrong people. And there may be fears going through your head of, oh my gosh, maybe I've made a mistake, a hiring mistake with this person because it's not working out. How do you deal with that? I know it is very difficult because, you know, when you're a founder and you hire your first eight people, your first 20 people, and then you promote them into your leaders, and then you're in the trenches with them day in and day out. And you have loyalty with them. You go to their weddings. You go to your events <laughs> with them, right? And you're really bonded with those people. But over time, as your company grows, what you definitely need is people who have done this before, who can lead in the new regime and kind of lead in the new situation. And the truth is that many people who love startups because there's no process and they can do anything they want and it's really exciting and there's a lot of you know ups and downs and also because they can learn a ton of skills. That's wonderful. But when the company gets to be five years old, seven years old, sometimes three years old, what's required for the company to be successful is more process, more senior leadership, a different way of managing, a different way of working. And some of the early employees don't want that. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's not bad. That's good. Everybody should self-select the environment they want to be a part of. One time I was talking to an employee at one of the companies that I work with. It's the company was sort of had around 200, 300 people at that point. And the person said to me, yeah, I don't like that. That's big company stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, oh, well. 200 people. <laughs> right? When you go to IBM, that's a big company. Oh, my gosh. You know what this sort of leads into, Alyssa, is that I discuss in my leadership workshops, and perhaps you do as well, that there is a difference between being a manager and being a leader. How do you define the difference? 
you know, I, I talk about in the book, there's like holy wars, you know, devoted to leadership versus management. Mm-hmm. And it's like the leader is inspirational. That's true. Sets direction. That's true. Is visionary for sure. And brings people along by, you know, sort of by voice and by message. The manager has the day-to-day work, you know, really, if you think about it, of holding people accountable and giving them feedback and coaching them and delegating, doing kind of the mechanics of management. What I think is that they're both super important. They can definitely be found in the same person, or the person has to shift gears at one moment to be a leader, one moment to be a manager. But I think management gets a bad rap. Like people brag like, oh, I'm not a great manager, but I'm a great leader. Well, unfortunately, mm. your company and your people need both. Mm-hmm. So you've got to figure out if you're going to be the leader, that's fine. But who's going to be the manager? Because both are important in the growth of your company. Absolutely. One of the things that I think people will certainly appreciate about your book is the reflective questions that you have at the start of every chapter. And just as important, I think, in the book are the sample scripts that you include at the end of the book for people when they have to have those delicate or difficult conversations. What are some of the topics your scripts cover? You know, I put together those scripts because a lot of my clients, we finally get them to the place where they're ready to have the conversation that needs to have with people. And then they would say, what, what should I say? Right. And I would kind of say, why don't you just say this? And then they would take notes furiously. <laughs> and so I realized that people need a template to start with, and that helps them get their mouth around the words. So some of those conversations include, how do you deliver bad news to your team? How do you announce layoffs? How do you fire someone? As in, what is the process to go through to bring them to the point where you're definitely going to part ways? Also, how to have a one-on-one that people don't really always understand that. How to tell them someone they did, how to tell someone they didn't get a promotion or that they're bringing a new leader on top of them. All of those are they live in small companies and in large companies, and every leader has to learn how to handle those de- delicate conversations and delicate moments. Well, they're great scripts, so I highly encourage people to read the book, but also to look at those scripts in particular. From Startup to Grown Up is filled with much wisdom from all of your own personal career experiences. You were at one time a vice president at two high-tech companies, a CFO of a startup company, and a consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers and The Monitor Group. Alyssa, what made you decide you needed to make a change in your career path and go out on your own? You know, Liz, those were great experiences. But I have to say that when I was a consultant, I woke up one morning and I thought, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. (laughs) That's what it was like. And I was rushed to the emergency room 18 hours later with the flu. And so I was down for the count for two weeks and I just realized this is not for me. It's not that, I mean, the work was, was interesting in its own way, but I just felt like the environment was not right for me. I felt like it was too big for me and that I couldn't have an, have an impact in the way I wanted to. The voice that was in my head was, that my hands mattered, the work of my hands mattered to make a difference. And so I kind of sought out what I wanted to do and I couldn't quite find it. And then I met a coach at a conference and it was like violins played, like, that's what I want to do. (laughs) But, you know, I, I think even though we may get to that realization that where we are is not the best fit, finding the courage to go out on your own, whether it's to become a coach or an entrepreneur, it's not easy. It's not easy. What gave you the courage? It's really hard, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We can speak that truth. Thank you for asking that. I feel like I don't get to tell this story enough. I was going to become a coach. I was working to become a coach. I was pretty young. I was actually in my 20s still. And I thought, well, I'm too young to be a coach now, and I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, I, I just had this really uncomfortable feeling about it. 
And I walked into the gym one day and I started crying. Like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this. What's going to happen to me? What will become of me? And for whatever reason, I channeled my 90-year-old self looking down on me. And I heard her say to me, what was she so worried about? You know, she had a condo. She had some money in the bank. She had parents who were not going to let her starve. She's not at the end of her career. She's at the beginning of her career. What is she so afraid of? And that was when I kind of got from the place of, I'm afraid I can't to, I'm going to try. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone has to find the tool to figure out what will motivate you and catalyze you to try and what does safety look like for you? Now, I didn't have any kids and, you know, I had, you know, I was pretty young and, and I had limited expenses, certainly. And as I said, I had like a backstop with my parents, but everybody has a capacity to take one step and try something and then one other step and try something. And it takes a lot of work. It takes ego work. It takes time and effort. And so you have to decide what you're willing to invest in with yourself and then continue to use tools like I have in the book and others to continue encouraging yourself even when the going is hard. I know when I made the decision to launch my business and I was petrified, I kept saying to myself, if fear was the only thing stopping me, that was not a good enough reason. Mm, right. That's very powerful. Mantras are very powerful. What we say to ourselves is very powerful. That's great, Liz. What have you enjoyed most about being a coach or an entrepreneur? Oh, everything. I mean, <laughs> I, love, I love to make a difference with my clients. So the best day for me is when I have this call with a client, a meeting with a client, and I know I've made a difference for them. And or they will say, oh, that was so helpful. Thank you. Or I'll get a text or follow-up that day, the next day, eight years later, 12 years later, yep. saying that was really meaningful to me. That I mean, there's a lot of great parts about being a coach, but that is the best part about being a coach to know that I made a difference for someone. I love that because I was literally just asked that question last night. What was my definition of success? And I said a very similar response, which was, I see the progress in my clients before they see it in themselves. But when they see it, when they feel it, that's like the best feeling in the world, isn't it? It's just an yeah. amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. Okay, we're friends, so I have a little factoid to share with people. Uh, you are known to possibly burst into Broadway song at any moment, <laughs> as have I been. <laughs> we should do a duet sometime. Yes. Okay, I know you're also an investor in Broadway with two of your shows winning Tony Awards. Okay, so many yeah. questions. What shows won the Tony Awards, and where did this musical interest come from? The two shows that, that I've been invested in that won the Tony Awards are, I'm so proud of this, The Inheritance, which is really a work of art and a, a beautiful show and a, a magnificent show in all aspects. And then Tootsie the Musical, which I absolutely thought was like such a joyful, fun you know, experience. It was, it was, again, a musical. I would say this. There's maybe two answers to this question. When, my, when I was growing up, my parents took us to musicals all the time. You know, and when I was growing up in Boston. And they took us to music all the time. And I had this love of theater, a love of music. I was in all the plays starting from fifth grade, <laughs> fifth grade, all the way through 12th grade. I was in all the drama club and I was in all the plays and I had a few solo singing parts. I was in district chorus. And so I love all of that. And then, you know, that's fine. I can love that all day long. But our mutual friend, Dory Clark, and I, we decided together to start this investment process. I think each for a different reason. You know, she, of course wants to learn more about the business of Broadway because she's, you know, inspiring Broadway musical writer herself. And I wanted to learn more about the creative process, meet a whole bunch of new people who I didn't have any experience with. 
also it's a New York thing. Yes. So I was excited when I first moved to New York that, you know, that was the kind of thing to get involved with. And then ultimately I'm always interested in the creativity and what makes it my, my quest is always to figure out with a tiny little business or a brand new musical, they both can be pretty bad. So what turn, <laughs> what makes them turn into either great companies or Tony winning works of art in a theater? Amazing. And and she's also a rapper, by the way, folks. And we're going <laughs> to we're going to include your the link to your rap song in our show notes. <laughs> Thank you. With all this musical background, when and why did you decide to become a CPA? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to you, it sounds like. I know. Well, it's so funny. I was a journalism major and I was in the nonprofit world. And then I went to business school at Cornell. And first of all, they admitted me with the condition that I had to go to math camp. I had to go to math camp before I was allowed into business school. Okay, so that's number one. <laughs> so that's kind of where I was coming from. From there, I ended up winning what's called the Freed Fellowship for Academic Achievements and, and Leadership Potential, which was only given to five of the second year students. So I you know, really progressed quite a bit. But I knew that I had something to prove, kind of. Plus the fact that at Cornell, crazy enough, we had an outstanding accounting faculty. And for whatever reason, the elegance of accounting, the elegance of, you know, sort of the process of thinking about what's going on inside of companies also appealed to me as a journalism major. It's kind of the language of business. So, you know, PwC recruited me and I said yes. And uh, it was on a five-year fast track to partner program. There was something about that that I thought my life was all set. When I told my favorite accounting teacher, Professor Mark Nelson, I said, I'm going to go to PwC. He said, well, that's great. I said, I'm going to become an auditor. He said, well, that will be very refreshing for the auditor uh, industry. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? But I found out what he meant. You know, and I got to see all sides of the firm and I learned a ton. You know, I'm a CPA, but I also got to see tax side, financial accounting, all sorts of different kinds of areas of consulting, including HR consulting and marketing consulting. I met a ton of people. So it was a fantastic background for me. With all due respect to all accountants, I've never heard it described as being eloquent. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's really funny. All right. Yeah. You've been named the number one startup coach in the world by our mutual friend and iconic CEO whisperer, Marshall Goldsmith. And Inc.com named you one of its top 100 leadership speakers. All of that is absolutely amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. What is your definition, Alyssa, of living your best life? Living my best life has to do with making a difference with the work that I do, feeling fulfilled inside of it, and having, you know, surrounding activities. Like I, I really like to do eclectic kinds of activities to know that I'm really um, experiencing all life that has to, has to happen or that, that it is out there. And I would say balancing all those things, sometimes being out of balance, but balancing all those things is living my best life. I love it. Folks, if you'd like to learn more about Alyssa and her new book, From Startup to Grownup, Grow Your Leadership to Grow Your Business, just go to her website, alyssacohn.com. That's A-L-I-S-A-C-O-H-N.com. Alyssa, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I loved it. And thanks to all of you for listening. May Alyssa's message help you learn to be a better leader, and make a difference, whether a founder, a manager, a CEO, or just a human being. Until next time, be well. 
This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud, and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.